a decorated music journalist on why your favorite 70s rock bands just seem a little weird. Today on the Music Universe podcast. How big of a uh, 70s rock fan are you, Matt? I want to see them all. I really do love it. I just, yeah. I, I don't know. The, the sound is so full and so. See, here's my thing with '70s rock bands: if they would turn it the hell down live. Oh come on. It, well, okay. So we went to see Guns N' Roses. We went to see Guns N' Roses, and it was. And I like Guns N' Roses music, but I'll tell you what: I left there. I left the garden. I had a pounding headache. I think. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mean turn it the hell down as in turn it down. Turn it down, you stupid kids. I mean, like, let, let, let us be able to hear the music live the same way we hear it on the on the radio, which is something I think country music and pop music and even hip-hop to a degree do really well live. But I think I think the really big rock bands kind of get out, get out ahead of themselves. Uh, you you mean... They just crank the volume up a little too much. Yeah, that the intricacies of the arrangements are just lost, and it's and it's noise, and music should never be noise. You know that that's how I feel about it. And you can disagree yeah. with me, but I mean, I went there fully expecting to enjoy. Put it this way: I went to Guns N' Roses not expecting a metal concert. The kinds of ways that they were blaring their music, I would expect from a metal concert, not a hard rock concert, if that makes any Interesting. sense. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you another example. Rush was perfect. Rush had a perfect mix. So it's not across the board. Aerosmith, You've I know, seen Rush. mixes really well. Yes. Yes. Well, lucky you. I, I missed him. You, did you not know that I saw Rush? I did not know that. 2010, my mom took me to the Allentown Fair. We saw Rush. Oh, how awesome were they? It was great. Although some yeah. drunk guy said, Neil's drum solo is about to last 42 minutes. I'm like, what? It wasn't. <laughs> so what? Well, coming from a drummer, I, I personally wouldn't care. But, you know, I, I get the whole too loud thing. I don't know how many times my bands have been told to turn down. I remember playing a... I, I don't even know if loud is the right word. I just think so obnoxious, so yeah. bleedingly obnoxious that you couldn't you couldn't enjoy it. Right. Well, I, I remember one time, and I know this is like small potatoes compared to all that, but mm-hmm. I, I just had um, I had a band playing uh, a high school event, and um, they were we were outside. I'm like, we're we're too loud. We're we're gonna have to be outside, and we had someone come from the gym, which was clear across campus. Uh, I had my PA system and stuff there. My dad was running it. A guy came out and he said turn down now and I mean now as soon as he walked away I walked up to my dad I go you're turning that back up and we play aren't you he goes, of course <laughs> so <laughs> you know rock and roll has its power behind it and uh, you know if, if you can hear it clearly from a distance awesome but if you can't hear it clearly from inside of an arena yes that becomes a problem yeah well, and, and you talk about that power. These four bands in Doug Broad's book, they just seem a little weird. They have the power to shape the shape the art, shape the genre. And it was such an incredible time talking to him about how rock, how these bands have really shaped rock and roll. The book focuses more on Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and a band that 
honestly, I've never even heard of called Stars, and it is spelled like the TV network. Um, and they they were kind of a neglected band, um, from mm-hmm. what uh, what he's showing, and, and that's that's clear because not many people have heard of them uh, due to some type of violence. But you got to read the book to find that part out. But Doug gives us a lot of insight, and uh, we talk um, two on one about the. Um, just about the history of rock and roll and what these bands have laid down for the foundation of future rock that uh, we still enjoy today. So here's Doug. Doug Broad, author of, and I love saying this title, they just seem a little weird. Thank you very much for being with us. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, it is so cool to have you. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to uh, to want to research and write a book about all the fabulous rock bands of the, the 70s and 80s. Um, well, you know, I've, uh, I've been a journalist my entire career, I'm mostly a magazine editor. Um, I worked at Entertainment Weekly, I worked at Spin Magazine, I worked at TV Guide, and among many others. And I've always been a big fan of music, particularly um, 70s rock, and, you know, later I got into punk and new wave. But I always wanted to write a book about 70s rock, because that's when I you know, that's when I started getting into music, and it was real formative for me. Um, and the first first band I ever really fell in love with was Kiss. I was it, it hit me at it hit me at the right time. It was the you know the mid seventies. I was like ten years old, eleven years old, and it really um, you know they, they really you spoke to me because I was a kid who was into horror movies and sci fi and comic books and. I really, I loved the way they looked. I loved the simplicity of their music and how it was just a lot of fun. Um, and I also loved Cheap Trick. You know, later on, a few years later, they came around and, and I, I really loved them. And I wanted, I wanted to write a book about 70s rock, but take a, you know, go look at it from an angle that no one has yet approached. And... I kept finding so many um, interconnections between Cheap Trick and Kiss, and then I discovered on Gene Simmons' 1978 solo album, he had members of Cheap Trick and Aerosmith and this band called Stars play on the record. So um, that was pretty much the launching had for this book it's just looking at these four bands and how they interconnected throughout the 70s reading what i've read so far and and it's a pretty lengthy book at 320 pages so i haven't gotten through it all but uh, just what i've been reading it's really just fascinating all these little stories and even the uh, marketing efforts and the thoughts behind kiss releasing their solo records and what they expected to sell based on previous sales it's just it amazes me like i I like the behind the scenes stuff and this book really kind of dives into that for those four bands. Yeah, that was one of the things I, I really wanted to convey in the book is, you know, to give a sense of the mechanics behind this and you don't really read, or I haven't really read that much behind, you know, what goes into making a record and, and bands touring and what were bands making back then when they would tour? I mean, when Cheap Trick opened for Kiss in 1977 on a U.S. and Canada tour, they were making a thousand dollars per show in 1977, and back then that was not a lot of money. Um, and 
for a band that had, you know, roadies that worked full time for them. They had, you know, a van. I mean, they, they had people working for them. So that wasn't a lot of money at all. So, you know, I tried to get into the mechanics of, of touring. I looked at a lot of um, a lot of other kind of industry um, centric um avenues uh for one thing i looked into the creation of album oriented rock aor which you know which really was in many ways the the linchpin of success for hard rock bands in the 70s i mean if you got on the radio with a single that meant you know you could sell you could probably sell millions of records right yeah right and you also talk here a little bit in the intro about Kiss's logo and about brand continuity and how they were kind of the ones to sort of pioneer the idea that, that the icon helps make the artist in a way. Yeah, you know, that's something that was very, um, very special, very specific to all four of the bands that cover in the book. They all had very recognizable logos. And that was a big thing back then in the 70s. I mean, you know, I remember scribbling on my my notebooks in school, the band logos, especially from the 70s with hard rock bands like Zeppelin and Van Halen and Kiss and Cheap Trick. You know, everybody was always scrawling the logos on their books. And, you know, back then when there were, there were no videos, no music videos, there were, you know, there weren't a lot of opportunities to see the bands on television. Um, you were kind of beholden to whatever the magazines published or whatever the radio was playing. It was really important when you marketed these records to have something that grabbed you and was very immediate and was consistent, usually, from album to album. Now, I want to get your thoughts on the, the term legacy artist. We talk about Kiss, we talk about Aerosmith, Cheap Trick, that that their heyday was and they are now. But the truth is, these bands often sell more now because of technology and because of the way touring has evolved. They're able to, they kind of are able to outsell their heyday. Do you think the term legacy artist, especially as it relates to hard rock, gets a little overused? Well, it depends. I mean, that's a good question. I, I think when you look at, you look at bands like actually all four of these bands that I cover in the book um, before the pandemic struck, they were actually playing. So these mm-hmm. are bands that have been around for 45 years um, in Aerosmith's case, 50 years. And, you know, a year ago or a year and a half ago, um, you know, Kiss were playing arenas on their, final tour quote-unquote final tour Aerosmith (laughs) had Aerosmith had a residency in Las Vegas Cheap Trick were about to go on tour with Rod Stewart and the the small the 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 lesser-known band Stars which I cover in the book they were about to go on tour with another band called Angel from the another cult band from the 70s so I mean I I'm not sure there you can call them legacy artists when I think of legacy artists I think even a little further back from the mid seventies, I think of like Bob Dylan, maybe the stones. I, this, this kind of stuff feels a little too, at least for me, a little too um, close and, and 
contemporary. So, um, but I, I know what you're saying. I mean, I, there, there's something to be said for a band like Kiss who can still come around and still sell out arenas. And, you know, they don't really sell that many records anymore. And they don't sell CDs, at least. Um, Cheap Trick actually is releasing a new album of new material in April. It was just announced yesterday. So you can look at these bands as legacy bands. At the same time, in, in the case of Cheap Trick, they're contemporary. They're still making music. They're still touring. Um, they're still respected by by their peers as well as the newer artists that are out there. Yeah, but everything they've done, and this has always bothered me, everything they've done gets compared to the heyday, the big hits. And it it's mm-hmm. really, really hard for these bands to to chart in the way they did when their genre of music was quote-unquote relevant or the, the music of the day, the pop music of the day. Um, what, do, mm-hmm. what do you say to that? You know what? I, I think in the case of these bands, they're not really looking to expand their fan base at this point. I mean, in, in, in a case of Cheap Trick, and they, they admit it, they say, you know, we make records for ourselves. They don't really need to, to make new music. I mean, when you see Cheap Trick now in concert, they'll maybe play one one newer song from the past 10, 15 years, but everything else is from their, you know, their heyday in the late 70s, early 80s. So, and, and in the case of Kiss, I, I've seen them twice in the past two years, and it's a total nostalgia fest. I mean, they don't really play any new, they don't play any new music. So it's, even the bands know that, that they're catering to people who came to see the hits. So I'm not really sure they're, they're, they're going for that, you know, that brass ring anymore. Mm-hmm. Kind of stepping back a second to like the, the logos and the artwork and stuff. I, I think we're losing that now in this digital age. So how, um, how do you think that, um, I guess kind of helps though, in the fact that a lot of these bands are often selling, it seems like uh, more digitally, than physically, how, how do you think that compares to then when artwork was kind of the basis of buying physical? Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, that was one thing. Back then, a, a big part of the joy of being a music fan was, you know, buying an album and pouring over the graphics and the inner sleeves had the, had the lyrics on them. And there was just a lot to absorb in the product. And now digital, now when you're listening to yourself digitally on Spotify or YouTube, you don't have that. Absolutely. I mean, I think these bands in particular are always going to, um, um, want to have physical product. I mean, not least because their fans happen to be older. So mm-hmm. older people, I mean, I'm not speaking for myself, but I'm speaking for some other older people, aren't, sometimes aren't as technically adept, and, and they're also more inclined to buy physical product. So whereas a newer artist, you know, might be pure digital and all, or even all, you know, all digital, these bands know that their fans want to buy stuff like Kiss is, Kiss still sells a lot of t-shirts and merchandise the same with Cheap Trick so they're giving their fans a piece of product to absorb and live with um 
I think these bands in particular have always been very graphic conscious. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you look at Cheap Trick Records, you look at Kiss albums, they always have really compelling graphics. Although I have to say, you know, Cheap Trick um, announced their new album yesterday online and they put up the album artwork and a lot of the fans on Facebook and Twitter have been very critical <laughs> of the art, which looks which looks a little amateurish for Cheap Trick. It's not one of the better covers. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we uh, we got that and put that announcement out uh, as well. And yeah, I I, I totally get where they're coming from. But uh, I'm a physical guy myself. I mean, I have over 1,100 CDs, and I've been buying vinyl lately. And sometimes I'll buy copies on CD and vinyl, maybe even a digital if they offer it in HD or something. So getting that tangible item i and i'm not even 40 yet so <laughs> speaking of the older crowd i'll i'll speak of my age as well and say physical all the way for me <laughs> oh i'm the same way i mean i you know I'm, I'm i'm a bit older than you are and um you know i got i think probably around 3000 cd's and i pared down my albums i probably have 500 albums now but you know it's as a fan, it's like the you want that that added texture. You want that, yeah. You know, I, I I like to program my own music and actually touch what I'm what I'm putting into the system. So I don't know. There's something the, the tangibility is something that that really speaks to me still. Let's talk a little bit about this. The title they just seem a little weird. What a great title because there are so many character traits of the rocker of the 70s rocker that these bands seem to seem to share and it's a little weird yeah well it's funny you know i when i when i decided to focus on these four bands i wanted to get a title that would be first of all immediately recognizable speaking to these four bands or at least to one of them and they just seem a little weird is a lyric from the Cheap Trick song, Surrender. And one of the things that I, I make a case for in the book is that these four bands are united by the fact that back in the 70s, they stood out as being a little weird and a little weirder than most of the other artists. Because back in the 70s, you had, you know, some of the most successful artists in this genre were Ario Speedwagon, Journey, Dicks, um, Foreigner, a lot of these corporate rock acts that were kind of faceless. They, they I mean, people knew who the, the, the performers were, but they didn't have a stage show. They weren't very theatrical. They didn't wear costumes or, in Kiss's um, case, makeup. So I, I looked at these four bands because there was a sense of humor, there was a sense of theatricality, there was a real flamboyance, which set them apart from many of the other bands during that time. You explore the foundation of how these guys, these four bands specifically, have just kind of uh, turned, uh, you know, the hair metal and the, the grunge genre into what it is, I guess, uh, because mm -hmm. so many people were influenced by them. How, how do you think... Because um, I didn't get that far in the in the book yet. How do you think that they laid the foundation for those bands like Poison, Skid Row, Motley Crue, and then even in the 90s? Yeah, well, you know, that, 
that was kind of like part two of the book. Part one of the book was was connecting these artists just because there were so many deep, you know, behind the scenes and, you know, and just the artists themselves were 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 very interconnected with each other. But the second half of the book kind of explores how these four bands were very instrumental in um, in influencing um, both hair metal and grunge. And, and many people see hair metal and grunge as kind of opposite subgenres of rock and roll because, you know, you have hair metal, which is all about flashiness and day glow and crazy hair and makeup and kind of superficial. And then you have grunge, which is stripped down, serious, mostly downbeat, um, kind of gloomy and, and quote unquote authentic. So to mm-hmm. me, it was pretty remarkable when I, you know, I, when I did research and I've known this for quite a while that, that artists on both sides of that spectrum are influenced by Kiss and Cheap Trick and Aerosmith and Stars, and especially Kiss, because when I was talking to a lot of people like Ricky Rocket from Poison, Kim Thale from Soundgarden, um, Scott Ian from Anthrax, Kiss was their first band. They were the first band that these guys loved, and it basically in, it influenced them and inspired them to become musicians. So to me, that was pretty remarkable that that these same bands influenced two very different styles of music. You said that word, authentic. Uh, we we do a lot of country music and a lot of rock music, and that word gets thrown around in our coverage of com- country music. Oh, such an authentic song. What makes, in your opinion, a rock song authentic and conversely what what makes a rock song inauthentic and perhaps perhaps a little too contrived well i i would i would argue that most rock music is despite what it calls itself it's not authentic i think i think everyone has a pose and everyone is is acting in their own way i mean i always look at it this way um you know, people love Bruce Springsteen. He's this, you know, he, he he's like a working class Jersey guy who was telling these stories about working class Jersey people, and he, you know, it was they were he was he was he was passionate about it, and it came across in the music. But then you had someone like Meatloaf who came in just a little bit later, who took that kind of sound and even used some of Bruce Springsteen's um, musicians on his first album, Bat Out of Hell. And, but he, but he made it explode and he, he made it theatrical and he took this sound and just made it really flamboyant. So in a way, I don't know if you can say that Bruce Springsteen was authentic because he was, he was a, a storyteller and by virtue of being a storyteller, you're, you're making things up. Um, I know people look at that as being perhaps more authentic than meatloaf. I just see it as, a, a, you know, a, 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 extremes. I, a, it, it, there is a, 
there's something about Bruce Springsteen that is that is inauthentic to me. Um, and I know people would argue about that, but I, I think a lot of music, you know, is is just people wanting to convey something in their own words that might not necessarily be be real. So th- if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. It does, but then it begs another <laughs> yeah. question. Uh, sorry, buddy, but I, I just got to jump in with this follow-up. Why do we connect to it? Oh, I think, you know, I just think everyone loves fantasy, and, and everyone loves mm-hmm. to recognize something in music that hits close to home. I mean, I, I grew up um, in New York, um, in Queens, New York. It was kind of an urban urban slash suburban environment and a lot of a lot of my peers a lot of my friends connected very much with bruce springsteen and they also connected very much with the grateful dead um i don't know if they had anything in common with the grateful dead but it was something about that music that spoke to them um at the same time i was more inclined to you know listen to kiss which was totally fake and contrived and silly and people didn't take me seriously. I mean, they, 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 they mocked, they mocked my love of kiss. And that's something I get, I get into in the book. It's that when you're a kiss fan and you're a passionate kiss fan, it's like, you have to put up with a lot of garbage from people. People want to, you know, people judge you about that and you have to defend this band. And I think it's a kind of a badge of honor and a rite of passage, especially for KISS fans, because they never got the respect that I think they deserve because they were seen as silly and phony and fantastic. With the authentic part, I, I get what you're saying, too. Like, maybe these artists that um, they're singing about these things, maybe they didn't actually live it. Exactly. Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Now, I know that you... Um, you worked for Atlanta Records, but I wanted to ask, going back to the whole, you mentioned earlier about um, artwork being like the, the draw to the music before MTV. How important, and I'm, I'm not quite sure when you worked for them or what you did, but how important was MTV for these artists that never released a video before, but suddenly they had this new platform? Yeah, well, I, I was at Atlantic Records for um, for a little under a year in the in the '90s. It was kind of past. It was it was already when MTV was like a big was 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 a big thing. And with these bands in particular, it's funny. I get into it in the book, but you know, Kiss. As soon as MTV started, Kiss took off their makeup, which to me is the most bizarre mm-hmm. thing because they were the most theatrical of bands back in the 70s and you would think that they were the most um they would have been the most um appropriate band for for videos but you know they were going through their own crisis in terms of you know band members leaving and their records weren't doing very well but then they decided to take the makeup off and they got it right at the beginning of MTV and they were accepted again. They were accepted because in that they, they stripped down, they ended up looking like any other hair metal band with like the day glow, you know, shirts and the, you know, the leopard skin pants and all of that. But, you know, for them, it really worked. And then Aerosmith, 
they were going through some tough times too, but then they had mm-hmm. they had Walk This Way, their collaboration with um, Run DMC, and that video was huge, and it was it was huge on MTV, and it was huge for their careers. Um, and then after that, Aerosmith became the quintessential MTV rock band. They had Love in an Elevator, they had Dude Looks Like a Lady, they had all of these songs that that you know, with big videos, big productions behind them. And that basically gave Aerosmith a second wind and, and a kind of a new lease on life. Now, fast forward to today with this pandemic, you know, you have a lot of sources. You talk to a lot of people in the book. What are you hearing? What are you seeing about how this pandemic is affecting the major, major rock artists that you talk about in the book and the other major hair bands and major rock artists that are out there performing? Because we think of them, the lay people think, oh, they have their zillions and millions of dollars and it's fine. But the truth is there's a whole team of people that they are responsible for employing that are probably hurting. And it's very interesting to see how the big players are being affected by this. Yeah, you know, as I said, you know, right before the pandemic struck, the, these bands were going out and performing. Um, they, there's, 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 they still are. I mean, Cheap Trick have announced that they're doing shows in 2021 in the UK, and they've rescheduled, I believe, their dates with Rod Stewart for later in the year. But, you know, who knows if that's going to, if, if things are going to be sorted out by then. For, for these bands to continue. In Kiss's case, Kiss did a very interesting thing over the new over New Year's, and they had this ten million dollar um, show they did in Dubai, which they streamed all over the world uh, with huge with huge pyrotechnics and fireworks and all of that. So the bands are, are trying to figure out ways to to come back from this. Um, Aerosmith, I believe, have rescheduled a uh, a big show at Fenway Park, which is kind of a homecoming gig for them in Boston. Um, so yeah, so so you're right. The, the the support staffs have taken the big hit. Um, the, the artists themselves, I mean, I don't think Kiss is the members of Kiss are hurting for money right now. Um, and frankly, these guys are all late 60s early 70s you know they're at that age when they could retire if they wanted to they just don't want to they 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 know that as long as they're standing and they can run around on stage and sing or play their instruments they still want to do it it's in their blood i want to ask specifically about kiss and then i know we got to let you go but the whole lip syncing tracks supplementing kiss used to be so against that specifically for kiss and more in general what do you make of rock bands supplementing with tracks now and utilizing technology to their advantage? Uh, that's a great question. You know, I, I, I'm not a purist. Uh, I, I realize that um, a lot of bands need help, and, and sometimes their arrangements are such that they just can't deliver all that you want to hear in a live setting, so they have to sweeten it somehow. Um, I would rather see a band do a show that might be sweetened a little bit uh, rather than 
then see them do a terrible show or, or do something that's lackluster. So I, I don't really have much of a problem with it. In fact, I, I took my daughter to see Panic at the Disco oh, wow. a couple of years ago. Yeah, and that and it's, it seemed to me that most of that show was was pre-recorded. I, I don't know for sure. <laughs> I think I think a good deal of it. There just wasn't. There weren't many instruments on stage. So like, where is this music coming from? Um, right. But but there was so much going on with 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 you know pyro and and at what point the the, the lead guy is like flying up in the air on, on his piano, you know, in the arena. So it's like, in order for that stuff to happen, you gotta, you gotta take from somewhere else. So, um, yeah. So I, I personally, I, I don't really have that much of a problem with it. I mean, I know there are a lot of purists who are like, Oh my God, they, you know, they, he's got a, there's a backup singer you're not seeing, or he's, he's singing to a track. You know, I it, as a fan, as long as it sounds good and and it's a band I want to see and they're giving me a good time, I'm not that hung up on the 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 extras. Yeah, and I think most people attending shows don't even think about it, and especially with all the theatrics going on, it doesn't even cross their mind. Exactly. Well, Doug Broad, the book is. They just seem a little weird. I'll never not say the title like that. It is an excellent look <laughs> at those four amazing, amazing bands. Thank you very much for your time. We will have you back again because your insight is just awesome. Thank you very much, sir. We really appreciate your time. My Absolutely. pleasure. You know, he conducted more than 130 new interviews for this yeah. book. It's incredibly sourced. Yeah, it's well over 300 pages, and it's just a, uh, it's honestly a secret history of classic rock. You know, that's how it's being described. And uh, I, I didn't know a lot of this, but uh, th there's a lot of great uh, material in here. And, uh, you know, I'm not much of a reader, honestly, but when it comes to this kind of uh, book where you get some history, some insight, background, whatever you want to call it, into more of the technical side that, that we're, you know, the marketing and all that, the stuff that you don't really hear about. It's really interesting to uh, follow along with. We talked about the supplements, supplementing towards the mm -hmm. end of the interview. And I brought something to mind that I don't think you know about Travis Tritt. Uh, no, please share. In his acoustic and his live show, and his full band show rather, he uses supplements. And it's a very sneaky way. And it's probably the most, to bring back a word, authentic and honest way of doing it while also still not telling the audience his guitar tech it plays i don't want to say rhythm what's the what there's rhythm guitar and what else uh well it, it's pretty much rhythm or uh like backing guitar backing what, you know. backing harmony guitar and if you go listen to the man and his guitar album after you realize this you you'll never be able to hear it the same because you can tell that the sound is fuller because his guy's off stage playing another guitar. And the reason I found this out is when I saw, I've, saw I've seen him twice. Mm -hmm. I've seen, I first saw the acoustic show, which strangely I actually preferred to then seeing him later, live band show. And Interesting. the live band show was in an in the round setting at the NYCB Theater at Westbury, one of my favorite theaters uh, outside of the city, outside of New York City. And he performed. Not in the round, but the, the guitar tech was stationed uh, off stage left in a little in a little cubby that they had kept open, didn't sell the seats. But it was mm -hmm. out in the open 
and you saw him working on all the guitars as they were switching back and forth, and you saw him on songs sitting down and and especially in the acoustic section of the show, show watching Travis and playing with Travis and adding a little bit of harmony and adding a little bit of a boost to Travis's guitar. And I'm like, that is genius. Because if you don't know what's there, you're not going to know it's there. And it and it's just such a full sound. It's almost like it, it makes it so that he doesn't have to use any loops or anything. He's there just lifting it up a, a little bit. You know, and, and we did get into that discussion. I am okay with that because it's all live. What mm-hmm. my issue tends to be, and, and I... You know, it, it is what it is. There's nothing I'm going, you know, anybody's going to do to change that. But my issue is when they play with backing tracks. Yeah. And I, Doug put it in another perspective too, you know, that these bands may not be capable of reproducing that live like they once were able to. So now they have to rely on that. So that way you get the concert experience that you came for rather than a shit show. So I... I respect that more on that level, but at the same time, it's not a thing for me. Now, is that going to stop me from seeing a band like Motley Crue live? No, because I do want to see them. But mm-hmm. yes, they use gang vocals pre-recorded. Obviously, they're in their 50s. They can't hit those notes anymore. Mick Mars seems like can barely move a lot of the times <laughs> due to his illness. So, you know, it, it makes sense for some bands, but... First, you know, I know a lot of people do have off stage uh, players. And to me, that doesn't bother me because they are physically there. What got Kiss in trouble was that it wasn't even the singing. It was the, whoa, yeah, woo. It was like all of that shit. (laughs) Uh, I hate that. That was baked in. And it's like, you don't even know when to be on the mic to go, woo, and, and match up your track. Come on. You yeah, know, that, now, yeah, you deserve the lip to syncing, be laughed at for that. Yeah, the lip syncing, you know, and you're going to get that with all these pop artists because they put more thought into the dancing than they do the singing. Mm-hmm. Their mics are typically on, but why aren't you hearing them breathing heavily whenever they're doing all these dance moves in the middle of singing, you know? <laughs> it makes exactly. you wonder. But they, they are definitely aimed at a different uh, demographic than the 70s rock bands. So makes a makes a little more sense, I guess. Well, it may just seem a little weird. Uh, a book that <laughs> delves into all aspects of mid-70s rock and roll. The touring stuff, I can't wait to read the chapters on that, dig into the economics and the logistics yeah. of how they pulled off those tours. Just an incredible read for anybody who's a fan of of understand of music and music history and how these bands worked. Check it out. It's available wherever books are sold. For the Music Universe Podcast, I'm Matt. And I'm Buddy, and we'll have that link on our website. Be sure to uh, check us out at themusicuniverse.com, everywhere on socials at The Music Uni, and uh, on YouTube as well for our weekly notable releases and uh, Weekend Notes series. Take care. (laughs) 